Join us on Archetypes, a dynamic podcast hosted by Megan, the Duchess of Sussex, as she digs into the labels that try to hold women back. In each intimate and candid conversation, Megan is joined by guests like Serena Williams, Mariah Carey, Paris Hilton, Issa Rae, and Trevor Noah as they delve into the roots of countless common descriptors of women, like diva, crazy, dumb blonde, and the B word, and redefine and reclaim each identity along the way. The complete season of Archetypes is out now wherever you get your podcasts. Are you curious about what drives our buying decisions? Tune in to Add to Cart, where Suchin Pak and Kulap Vilaisak reveal the deeper layers behind our purchases. From the whimsical to the serious, they explore it all. Whether it's a debate over a quirky swimsuit or a deep dive into a new life philosophy, they've got you covered with their hilarious and subversive takes. Don't miss out. Add to Cart from Lemonada Media has new episodes every Tuesday wherever you get your podcasts. Lemonada. Hey there, I'm Julian Castro. And I'm Sawyer Hackett. And welcome to Our America. This week we're dedicating the episode to talking in depth about our nation's housing crisis by speaking to two folks who are at the front lines of this issue. I'll also note that this particular episode is in partnership with the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, which is committed to building a more inclusive, just, and healthy future for everyone. First of all, we're really excited to chat with Ruby Bolaria Schifrin. Uh, Ruby is the head of the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative's Housing Affordability Project. And before that, Ruby worked in real estate development as a project manager for multifamily mixed income development projects in San Francisco. She also worked internationally at the housing department in Johannesburg, South Africa. Ruby, thanks so much for joining us on Our America. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, so... Uh, you have had quite a career already, having worked in Johannesburg and in San Francisco. Uh, certainly there in San Francisco, you've had like a front row seat to some of the biggest housing challenges that America knows. I just wanted to start off by asking you how you got interested in this journey of advocacy on housing. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, I started my career in organizing, actually. I was working in social justice and public health on food justice rights and, and environmental rights, mostly. And um, I've also never owned a car. And so always taken public transit and, and kind of experienced cities through that lens. And so when I was organizing, talking to folks about these issues, it became really clear um, the link housing had and the impact in people's lives, right? It was hard to talk to people about, um, you know, eating healthy foods or kind of water systems or whatever it was um, when they don't have access to any of those goods, when they're far away from jobs, healthcare, education, right? All of these things. So it felt like housing was this linchpin issue and I didn't know enough about it. And so I ended up going um, back, to, back to school. I went to grad school for urban planning and focused on housing and I really see it as this kind of tide that can lift all boats because housing is both an end goal, right? We want safe, accessible, equitable housing for everyone, but it's also a means to an end in terms of helping to alleviate poverty, uh, increasing economic mobility, supporting better health outcomes for communities of color and low income, 
um, thinking about mitigating climate change, right? All of these things that lead to greater shared prosperity. So Ruby, can you talk a little bit about what the uh, Chan Zuckerberg Initiative's Housing Affordability Project does? Uh, what are the, some of the sort of top line goals? What do you think you all can bring to this housing affordability crisis? Uh, you know, how can we meet this moment? What sort of resources are you bringing to the table on that? So the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative's housing team is dedicated to building a more equitable, affordable housing system in California so that everyone, regardless of their background or income level or country of origin, has a safe, reliable place to call home. And as a philanthropy, as a funder, you know, our primary goal is to strengthen and unite groups on the grounds, frontline organizations that are helping to elevate the solutions that we already know. And also to ensure that flexible capital and resources are available to the field. And our approach is anchored in the three Ps. Um, we need to produce more housing across income levels. We need to protect residents from displacement. And we need to preserve existing housing. Oh, and how, how do you grade California right now on each of those three Ps? California uh, has often been noted in a lot of headlines, right, as being the epicenter of our housing crisis. But it's definitely not something that is exclusive to California. If anything, the pandemic has shown us how widespread housing insecurity is and the impact that can have on other issues, including public health. And when I think about how we got here, not just in California, but nationwide, it didn't happen overnight, right? Decades of disinvestment in affordable housing, the government basically shrinking its role, underbuilding despite increasing demand, rising building costs, and a deep-rooted history in systemic discrimination, combined with the lack of public and political will for reform, has kind of created this perfect storm. I think a potential silver lining is that COVID exacerbated all of these underlying inequalities and has created a problem so big that it's hard to ignore. And so there is actually, I feel like, a lot of political will to make reforms. I think it's about actually doing them now and executing and having the resources to do them is where we're at today. So Ruby, I would love to talk a little bit about California's homelessness problem, because I know that the pandemic really sort of exploded the number of unhoused uh, people living in California. And, and that unhoused population was especially subjected to, uh, you know, risk of COVID, you know, dying from COVID uh, and all the things that comes with not being housed. Can you tell us a little bit about what the Jan Zuckerberg initiatives uh, focus on folks who are homeless and what you're seeing, I guess, in the numbers right now, uh, what that dynamic looks like? In California, we have, I think, about 50 percent of the unsheltered homelessness population of the country. Um, so we are overrepresented in that. Absolutely. But I also think that that represents the tip of the iceberg in terms of who is facing the impacts of housing insecurity. Because homelessness also doesn't just look like unsheltered populations, right? Homelessness is a condition that people can come in and out of. Um, so it's that job loss, right? Where you're in between jobs and staying on someone's couch or sleeping in your car or kind of maybe on the streets for a couple nights but able to get into shelters. And so that can be so hard sometimes to both quantify and also the face of homelessness, I think, is really changing. Um, I think when folks think about homelessness, they think about that chronic homeless individual that has been on the streets for a year or longer, suffers maybe some kind of mental health or substance abuse. But the reality is that over 70% in California, over 70% of homeless population is economically induced, meaning that it's not actually mental health or 
you know, addiction issues that are driving this pandemic, it's economic insecurity. And so in California, you're seeing that even more so with, you know, we're the sixth largest economy in the world, yet we have extremely high rates of poverty. Um, And so we have this two-tailed recovery almost, where um, folks, some folks have done really well during this, the last couple of years, and others have really slipped deeper and deeper into poverty. Um, and, you know, when you hear about the solutions to homelessness, one thing you don't hear as often as you should is housing. We need more housing, right? Um, and I think oftentimes people point to the lack of production as a major reason why we're Uh, have affordability issues, which is absolutely true. Um, But production alone is not enough, right? More supply can definitely ease the demand. But for today's affordability and homelessness crisis, we also need to prioritize preservation and protection by not expanding the conversation beyond production to include protection and preservation, we're ignoring the real truth that many families are already facing displacement and can't hold on and wait the five to seven years for that new home to be built. And so we need to be thinking about things like rent caps, just cause eviction, emergency rental assistance to help stem the tide and stop the bleeding uh, instead of waiting until people are already unsheltered and on the streets. You know, I kind of alluded to this a few minutes ago, but there in San Francisco, you, you see it all. Right, including a lot of displacement among you know people who lived in San Francisco for a long time, and especially communities of color. Black San Franciscans uh, have been driven out now for decades. Uh, the black population in that city has dwindled, just like in Austin, Texas, just up the road from me. How do y'all, as a nonprofit and a funder, how do y'all think about trying to address that dynamic? Because it's not an easy one to address as much as, you know, as much as it seems straightforward. It's not easy at all. (laughs) And I think that um, this is an issue that a lot of places are facing, right? The disproportionate impact, especially on Black communities of affordability issues. You know, one thing in particular that's been interesting for us is one of the programs that we've helped launch is... um, this program called Keys to Equity, and it's an ADU program, an accessory dwelling unit program that helps Oakland homeowners. So it's actually not based in San Francisco, but it's based in Oakland. It helps Oakland homeowners build an ADU on their property. And just for reference here, an ADU is either an attached kind of garage conversion type thing or a detached kind of standalone um, housing unit that's that shares on your property and also called a granny flat, right? And so um, those now have been legalized in our state, but unless you have enough equity built up in your home or enough income, then you can't really get financing for it. And so we partnered with the city of Oakland to help build this product specifically with Black homeowners in mind um, as ones that face a lot of housing instability, especially even homeowners, right? Black homeowners have more housing instability than white homeowners in Oakland. And so being able to have a, a source of revenue to help them stay in place as well as provide more housing supply, and add to density that these units also tend to rent out below market, we see as as kind of a win-win. But one of the biggest things, too, that, you know, across the Bay and, and across the state, really, is that this has been decades in the making, and so it's really hard to have a quick fix on how to now stop the ramifications of that. 
So Julian mentioned at the top of, uh, of the show that you worked internationally on, on housing issues in Johannesburg, South Africa. Can you talk a little bit about how that may have informed your understanding of housing policy and what you sort of take away from that experience? It, it really showed me that everybody's dealing with the same issues <laughs> globally. <laughs> um, so in Johannesburg, in South Africa, it's interesting, housing is a human right, which is something that advocates are fighting for here in the United States as well. But the human right to housing doesn't necessarily mean you don't have a marketplace for housing as well. Um, and so it's all income-based, right? So if you make under a certain amount, I think it was like 300 rand, then you get access to government-supported housing. Otherwise, you kind of can go into the market. So there's a missing middle, just like what, what's here in the U.S., right, of folks who earn too much to qualify for the government housing, but yet not enough to make it into the private housing. And so then they end up kind of squatting in vacant buildings or living in really uninhabitable, dangerous places or getting displaced completely, right? Moving to other places far away from jobs and resources in order to afford a place to live. Very similar situation in the U.S. Um, for the folks that were the eligible for government housing, where the government built that housing was oftentimes far from resources, right? High opportunity areas. And so when you got access to that housing, a lot of folks chose to continue living in the slums and rent out that housing. And in a way, they could earn income from that, which was great. But the government started cracking down and saying, no, it needs to be owner-occupied. So it was these interesting dilemmas of, you know, what are the outcomes we're trying to achieve? It's about economic mobility. It's about self-sufficiency, right? All of these things and maybe the more prescriptive ways of how you should get there aren't necessarily the best ways to go versus thinking more of an outcome-based metric, right? Um, so that was really interesting. And then the um, the other thing that was kind of similar or helped inform my way of thinking now is I was working on a, a pilot upgrading project. So we were working with slum dwellers to upgrade um, their existing slums, which are considered the waiting room for your housing unit in South Africa. And the residents themselves would build them. So there would be some sweat equity in that. Um, and the materials were provided by both a nonprofit and government kind of coming in together. And you see actually models similar to that, like in the Central Valley with farm workers um, who come together and pool resources to buy materials and build housing collectively. And so I think some of that innovation actually comes from the resiliency of having to make what you can out of what you got. How do you all think about uh, the interconnectedness of housing and uh, economic development and transit. And uh, you said you work on uh, issues of food justice. How do you all connect the dots in the work that you're doing and the partnerships that you've struck up for the benefit of the people that y'all are trying to serve? You know, as I mentioned earlier, right, the pandemic has only magnified existing racial and economic inequities within our housing system. They've disproportionately impacted communities of color across the country for decades. But we've also been reaffirmed that our housing system is so precarious now and things have gotten so bad that regardless of your kind of background and job status, that you could experience housing instability. So this means that this is not just a low-income people of color issue. It's something that's impacting the middle class and making it harder to make it, not just in California, but across the country. Here in California, we saw that the key groups leaving are in their 30s to early 50s and tend to make about 100000 to 200000 a year. 
And multiple studies show that housing costs is a key driver for this. So they're leaving despite having good paying jobs because, you know, they're paying 40% or more of their income on housing costs and they're figuring it's just not worth it. And inflation also, right, housing costs drive inflation because CPI, about 40% of CPI is driven by rent. And so as we see rent costs increasing throughout the country, it's also having a negative impact on everybody's cost of living. And so this forced choice really is having a ripple effect, not just in things like the cost of living, but also it's creating intergenerational displacement and pulling people away from areas of high opportunity, where we know through studies like those from Raj Chetty, that place matters for economic mobility. Um, And this for me is, you know, personal. I'm from the Bay Area and my family, my cousins and I are all talking about this, like how we can't afford to live in the Bay Area anymore and have families. And so even though we all grew up together and wanted our kids to grow up together, folks are either moving further and further out into the periphery of the Bay Area or leaving the state altogether. Um, and it just breaks my heart because we're, we're not able to um, have that familial tie. But also the economic outcomes of our children's generation are really determined by place. And so where you move will have an impact on that too. And so our approach is looking both at place-based investments so that the answer isn't just to always move, right, to an area of high opportunity, but how do we also improve every community so that no matter where you live, you can have access to the same opportunities, whether it's transit, jobs, education, healthcare. So Ruby, on the philanthropy side of housing, uh, I think you, you probably have better access to some of the emerging trends or big ideas in housing and homeownership. What are you, I guess, hopeful for or excited about on the housing front that you guys are looking at these days? The field is really rethinking homeownership in a, in a big way. And is homeownership the answer? And I think that the reality is that homeownership, unlike being a renter, uh, provides you economic stability, political power, Um, more of a voice, right? And so until we can solve for that, until we can think about shifting some power so that renters have the same rights, frankly, that homeowners do, I think that's more now the conversation is how do we ensure that renters have economic, social, and political power in the same way that homeowners do? And then it becomes less of a stigma because it does feel like a stigma for renters, right? It's like, oh, you're still renting? You know, people talk about it like that versus being a homeowner is like you've made it. Um, and I mean, I, I, my mom still tells me that too. I'm a, I'm a renter, me and my partner are renting. And she thinks that I like haven't made it in life because I'm not a homeowner, right? It's, it's also part of like this immigrant dream and, you know, all of that stuff. But I think that the conversations that we're hearing now from advocates and philanthropy is thinking, rethinking this idea of homeownership, which I think is um, really revolutionary in some ways. And then another big idea or kind of concept that a lot of folks are talking about is our shared ownership models. And so if we rethink home ownership, but we still want to have kind of the stability and the economic mobility that home ownership can, can give you, how do we get that in a different way? So community land trusts are a big thing that folks are talking about, which have been around since the 60s, right? Started by black sharecroppers in the South, but have kind of taken on new life, especially in California, as folks are thinking about taking land off the speculative market and ensuring that it can stay affordable in perpetuity. As as you think about uh, the state that you're in, California, and 
the multiple investments that are being made at the state level, also at the local level from Los Angeles to the Bay Area to some smaller communities. What is your assessment of when California might be able to start making progress uh, to meeting its affordability issues? Because, I mean, it seems like it's been the same story and it's frustrating, frankly, because in many ways, California has gotten a lot of things right. For instance, uh, you know, we talk about economic justice on workers' rights, on wages, on trying to be progressive, whether it's with housing policy or other types of policies. And yet it has this huge challenge on homelessness and housing affordability. When do you think that... uh, the state is going to start making significant progress? You know, I actually am incredibly proud of the last few years of policy changes that have happened statewide to help grease the wheels for that those big impacts and changes. Um, so as you all know, this, this takes time. Uh, but we've been able to pass just cause eviction, rent caps for the state, zoning reform to allow for multiple mm-hmm. lots on a single use, right? Uh, there's more effort where that came from, too. I think kind of zoning reform is a hot topic generally when it comes to policy change. And groups are starting to work together more in the field to connect the dots on housing being a climate issue, being an anti-poverty issue, being a public health issue, right? And so that type of coalition building, I think, also is power building to get the change that we need. The biggest barrier in terms of actualizing some of those goals, I think, are going to be moving voters' hearts and minds to believe housing is a human right and to say yes to building all kinds of housing, not just low-income housing, right, but um, kind of rethinking the single-family home white picket fence model because that model is unsustainable, your children will not be able to stay in the same community that you grew up in if we continue down this path. And so I think one of the things that we're supporting a lot is groups working on narrative change across the state so that when we do all of this great work of passing all of these policies, that implementation can be just as seamless and folks can accept the changes that need to be made. Thank you so much, Ruby, for joining us. uh, And thank you for your advocacy. Thank you. Thanks, Ruby. Can't get enough of your favorite Lemonada Media podcasts? By subscribing to Lemonada Premium today, you'll gain access to fun and inspiring bonus content from all of our podcasts across the Lemonada Media network. As a subscriber, you can listen to never-before-heard interview excerpts, behind-the-scenes segments, and continue to uncover new ways to make life suck less through all of our exclusive subscriber audio. Check out a free trial of Lemonada Premium today in the Apple Podcast app by clicking on our podcast logo and then the subscribe button. Last Day is a show about the moments that change us. I just don't think I will ever get used to this. I'm Stephanie Whittles-Wax, and I have had one of these moments. We all have. So let's unpack the chaos that is our human existence together. I don't believe things happen for a reason. I don't believe the universe has a plan. Each week, I sit down with a new guest to explore happy, sad stories of transformation. It's leaning far, far into the pain. That's what it is. Listen to Last Day wherever you get your podcasts.
Welcome back to Our America. Lori Goodman is Vice President for Housing Finance Policy and the founder of the Housing Finance Policy Center at the Urban Institute. The center provides policymakers with data-driven analyses of housing finance policy issues that they can depend on for relevance, for accuracy, and also, importantly, for independence. Uh, Before joining Urban, uh, Lori spent 30 years as an analyst and research department manager at several Wall Street firms. She's also published more than 200 journal articles and has co-authored and co-edited five books, and we're happy to have her here on the show today to talk about what in the world is going on when it comes to housing in this country. You've been at this uh, a lot of years, Lori. You've seen years. the ups Thanks and so downs. Thanks so much for having me on today. <laughs> I was uh, I was joking with Sawyer beforehand a second ago that you know there's a thing or two that you could teach us on this stuff. A lot of people are hurting right now, and um, maybe before we delve into some of the particulars. This, how do you see where we're at with housing in America today and what's at stake? So we have an acute housing supply shortage. We're probably about, so total supply of housing is about probably about 4 million units short of total demand for housing. That shortage is particularly acute for those who are at the lowest income level. So we have an acute supply demand imbalance. We simply haven't built enough housing over the last 15 years or so to keep up with the growth in household formation. When we think about this housing shortage that we have, what has the pandemic done to that over these last couple of years? I mean, how have these last two years of the pandemic affected housing? So the pandemic has actually aggravated it because people are no longer content to double up. They were never happy about it, but they were willing to do it. So what the the pandemic has done is it's increased home prices tremendously. It's also increased rents tremendously because of Mm. a greater demand for homes, be be they homes that you own or homes that you rent. So, Lori, how much of the housing unaffordability problem can be attributed to, to NIMBYism and just sentiments about building new multifamily properties? How can we sort of remove that stigma of NIMBYism from politics, from politicians? How do we remove them from the process so that we can restart some of this housing construction that we so desperately need? So I think there's, you know, sort of the lack of housing supply has a lot of issues and certainly zoning restrictions are one of them and not in my backyard is a huge reason for that where basically higher density is rarely allowed i think that is beginning to shift a little bit and you're seeing it probably with the permission of allowing accessory dwelling units so two states california and oregon and a number of cities including minneapolis Seattle, Austin, allow accessory dwelling units as a matter of right. That is, it's sort of considered politically acceptable, higher density. But you're right, zoning is certainly a key reason for the housing supply shortage, but it's not the only reason. You also have very, very high construction costs. Regulation adds 25% to the cost of a home, according to the National Association of Home Builders. Um, and financing issues aren't easy either. So I think it, so. it's not just zoning, although zoning is a key contributor. 
I wanted to ask you about the generational breakdown in, in home ownership because I think you know as a millennial myself, uh, who you know housing ownership has not been, been within reach just yet. I'm worried that my generation uh, will just see the inequality exacerbated to a level where home ownership will only just be available to the, to the very wealthiest few. Does Urban Institute do research into how uh, home ownership breaks down by generations, and, and what do you think that looks like? You know, ten, fifteen years from now. So we have done how home ownership breaks down by generation. And what you find is that every generation has a slightly ho lower home ownership rate than the last. If you break it down both by generation and by race ethnicity, what you find is there's a huge difference. The largest difference is actually in the black community, where every generation has a much, much lower home ownership rate than the last. But yes, um, you definitely see a pattern where, you know, our projection is that the home ownership rate goes down over the next 20 years, despite the aging of the population, because each generation has a lower home ownership rate than the last. When we think about innovative ways to solve this problem at the national level, the state level, and also the local level, what are some local communities or states or federal policies that give you hope uh, that we might be able to tackle this in the years to come? There are certain communities that realize how detrimental their kids not being able to buy a home is to the community. And so the Yes in My Backyard movement is beginning to gain a little bit of strength. Um, on the single family side, I think the approval of accessory dwelling units could be a huge contributor to increased supply. I actually think preservation could be very, very important. We, you know, the, the average home in this country was built in 1978, and a lot of the homes need renovation. And I'm hopeful that maybe renovation financing can improve. You've seen some signs of that. Um, and then finally, you know, increased use of manufactured housing. Manufactured housing prior to the passage of the HUD code in 1976 could be anything. At this point, it's a very good quality product. And because of zoning restrictions is not used to the extent it should be, but it is the most affordable type of housing. I'm also hopeful for higher density, particularly higher density near transit zones. You also will have a lower rate of household formation going forward, most likely. So with increased supply and less demand, hopefully the problem corrects itself over time, but it will take time because we are so short of housing units right now. Well, at the beginning of the uh, Build Back Better push, the initial legislation, I think there was something like $113 billion of different types of investment in housing affordability. Uh, of course, Build Back Better is not going to happen. What do you see as the most likely investment that the federal government will make in affordable housing? The really scary thing about housing for lower income individuals is that three out of four people who qualify for federal housing assistance actually don't receive it at all. There's just simply not enough funding. So I was hoping that there, there would be um, some expansion of housing choice vouchers and that sort of thing, um, sort of expansion of the low-income housing tax credit, I think, is a possibility. I know that the government has been trying to figure out how they can improve financing for renovation for accessory dwelling units. Um, and I think financing could play a role as well. 
But again, there is no, because there's no single cause, there's no silver bullet either. Yeah. And it's Sawyer's telling me I got my number wrong. I think it was like close <laughs> to $300 billion yeah, or something. It's somewhere between 250 and 300 in the initial iteration. <laughs> yeah. But um, yeah, unfortunately, that's not going to happen. Lori, can you talk a little bit about the relationship between mortgage rates and uh, housing prices right now? Because I feel like a lot of people are looking at this housing market. They're seeing, you know, it's on this rise, this meteoric rise, and, and they can't seem to catch up. And now mortgage rates are starting to head up at a rate that they haven't seen in a while with inflation as well. Can you talk about a little bit about that relationship and what that looks like? Sure. I mean, historically, what you've seen is you'd think, well, gee, higher interest rates. Shouldn't that mean housing is less affordable and therefore home prices fall? In fact, when you look at the relationship historically, you don't see that at all. What you see is that higher interest rates are generally associated with inflation, with a stronger economy, with wages rising. And so in general, the relationship between home price appreciation and the changes in interest rates are actually positive. That is, higher interest rates is correlated with higher home price appreciation. We broke that down a little bit further looking for periods where interest rates had risen more than 150 basis points and looked at what happened to home price appreciation during those periods. And during those periods, what you find is that home price appreciation slowed but never went negative. So now now that, uh, you know, the housing prices have sort of skyrocketed ahead of mortgage rates increasing, do you expect that that rise is only going to continue with homeownership, with, with housing prices or... I expect home price appreciation to slow dramatically, but I don't expect home prices to decline. Mm. They may decline in certain areas of the country that have had huge, huge runoffs, but I certainly don't expect a decline nationwide. Um, and even in the, and I think those areas of the country are going to be very, very few. I expect a dramatic slowing in home price appreciation with rates here. Well, and Lori, I mean, where do you think we are now on, on, uh, the idea, the push for home ownership, you know, when I became HUD secretary in 2014, you know, we had come off of the, uh, we we're at the tail end of that great recession and all of the issues we had with housing that were a part of it. And um, one of the points that I made clearly was that we had to end the stigma of promoting home ownership. In other words, that home ownership has a role to play uh, that can be strong and good. Um, a lot of people were shy about saying that at the time. Where do you feel like we are now in terms of a push for home ownership? I feel like people view home ownership as the single best way to build wealth and they aspire to it, but as aspiration is not necessarily the same as achievement. And certainly the pandemic, I think, made people want to put down roots, wanted a place that you know was large enough for their family that they could call home. I think where we are now is sort of a middle ground. I think people realize the importance of home ownership. They realize how important it is to building wealth. And I think one of the things that came out of the crisis was there were a lot of young people who said, well, gee, I watched my parents' home lose value. I watched them lose everything they put into it. I'm not sure I want home ownership. I think the home price appreciation of the last few years has changed that mindset with more people saying, gee, I want a stable place to live. Gee, home prices seems to be doing pretty well. And what's even better is I am locking the single largest component of my housing costs, which is my mortgage. My rents are going up year after year, but once I get that 30-year fixed rate mortgage, I've locked those costs. Um, on the other hand, 
aspiration for home ownership is not the same as achieving home ownership. And I think there are a lot more people that aspire to home ownership who haven't been able to achieve it because home prices have risen so much. Hi, I'm June Diane Raphael. And I'm Jessica St. Clair. And we would like to invite you on a hilarious and heartfelt journey each week on The Deep Dive. From navigating the chaos of motherhood and family to exploring the depths of grief and loss, we are just two best friends who process life together and with you guys. Discover our secrets to finding joy amidst the madness and get ready for unfiltered conversations about life, love, and everything in between. And nails. We talk a lot about nails. Now, community is everything to us at The Deep Dive. We believe in the power of connection and the strength that comes from supporting one another. And we would love to have you with us. So be sure to join us every Wednesday on The Deep Dive from Lemonada Media, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, listeners. Are you looking to update your wardrobe with items that actually make life suck less? We're here to help. We've got brand new Lemonada merchandise from Add to Cart, In the Bubble, The Interesting, Race by Ricky, and more at the Lemonada Media online store. From stylish sweatshirts to eco-friendly water bottles, we've worked hard to curate a comprehensive line of actually cool merchandise that will fit seamlessly into your everyday life. Show off your favorite Lemonada podcast or your favorite lemon logo in style with t-shirts, tumblers, hats, mugs, and more. Head to our merch store at lemonadamedia.com slash shop to pick up your Lemonada merch today. Have you all studied at Urban? Have you studied the relationship between student debt and home ownership uh, for younger Americans? I, you know, especially right now as the country debates, you know, whether President Biden will cancel student loan debt, whether that's a barrier to home ownership for young people. Have you all studied that relationship at all? We have studied it a little bit, but it's actually a very complicated relationship because people who have student loan debt oftentimes. You know, the question is, what's the counterfactual? You can't compare someone who has student loan debt to someone who didn't because someone who doesn't have student loan debt has parents who are affluent enough to do that intergenerational wealth transfer. And then the other complication is there's a huge difference between those who have a lot of student loan debt because they've went to law school or medical school who generally are homeowners. So you find that those that have suffered the most are those who took on student loan debt and then didn't finish college. Lloyd, I want to go back to something that you mentioned earlier, which is uh, preservation. And I-, I wondered if you could talk about, and we're going to use one of the terms that we use in the housing world of naturally occurring affordable housing. Just uh, for folks that are not steeped in this housing issue, what is that and how do we ensure that we preserve it? Yeah, so naturally occurring affordable housing, it generally refers to rental properties that are affordable but unsubsidized by any federal program. So the rents on these properties are relatively low as compared with other properties in the local housing market. Um, The need for naturally occurring affordable housing is very, very large, and preservation is just so important because these units, they're lower priced because they're generally older. They're generally in less good shape. 
and they're an increasingly scarce supply. We're losing about 100,000 of these units each and every year. I want to lay out an argument that that some policymakers make, uh, which is, as you know, in city after city out there, one of the things that's happened over the last decade, maybe even longer, is that there have been a lot of luxury apartments, right? Like higher-end multifamily uh, dwellings built out. And I guess to some extent, you know, a higher end single family housing as well. One argument that folks have made is that, well, it's okay to focus on that end of the market because everything under it then eventually becomes more affordable to folks. What do we make of that argument? And is it sufficient to rely on that? So, you know, the answer is, I think every unit of housing built, no matter how luxury, is an, is an additional unit of supply, which is a good thing. That the luxury housing should receive no subsidy, but if someone chooses to build to build it and can rent it out, yes, there is a filtering process. That filtering process definitely takes time, but I don't view luxury housing as taking anything away from naturally occurring affordable housing. It seems to add; it just simply adds to the stock and the housing that was then luxury sort of filters down. But that again, that filtering process takes a long time. So Laurie, how has the how has the pandemic affected mobility for potential homeowners in that, you know, obviously people have moved to online work, remote work uh, in much more serious numbers. They've moved away from big cities uh, in droves and into into suburban communities and rural communities. Has that changed the homeownership landscape uh, across the country? So the question is, does this stick and how does this stick? So a lot of people, for example, that have moved from big cities have actually purchased second homes and kept their home in the big city. Um, And, you know, I live in New York and there are a bunch of people who rent in New York and then have purchased a home in upstate New York, but they haven't relinquished their rental property. And in fact, second home sales have just boomed. So to the extent it's a sale of a second home, it does absolutely nothing. If anything, it hurts supply. I think we have to see how this all settles out, Um, you know, to the extent that you get people moving away from big cities where the homeownership rate is generally lower and houses are less affordable to more rural areas, to exurbs, that could actually raise the homeownership rate. But I think it's way, way too early to tell how all this um, sort of falls out at the end of the day. Well, and I mean, related to that, uh, a lot of attention has been cast on investors that are buying up properties in communities across the country, and then also folks who Airbnb out units that they own. Uh, Have y'all delved into the impact that either of those players are having on the housing market? Um, So we haven't delved into Airbnb at all. On the single family rental side, um, we have looked at that. You know, I still demand a unit of housing, whether I'm an owner or whether I'm a renter. So it doesn't change the demand side and it hasn't changed the supply side. It's changed my ability to build wealth if someone else, if I rent that property from a single family landlord. But I think we're asking the wrong questions with um, single family rental. So what we're saying is, oh my God, look at these single family rental operators, particularly the institutional guys, they're taking properties away from first time home buyers. And I think the reality is that the single family investors are putting an average of, according to Invitation Homes 10K, about $30,000 into each property they buy to renovate it. Renovation financing for an individual, assuming I had the know-how to do it, is 
very, very cumbersome. It's time consuming. The denial rates are extraordinarily high on renovation financing. So I think, you know, rather than saying bad institutional landlord, what we're supposed to be saying is, is there a way we can improve renovation financing for individuals who choose to do it? I think we're asking the wrong set of questions. And I think there's a lot of room to improve the current renovation financing structure so that it's much more friendly to individuals who choose to do that renovation. Um, because those are the homes that um, you know institutional guys are buying. They're not buying a home where I walk in and say, oh my God, I can see my, all I need is my curtains on the window. So, so Lori, we're coming up on, on the end of our time here, but I was wondering if you had your way, what would be the sort of top legislative or executive actions that, that you would take right now to boost homeownership and, and lower the barriers to, to housing affordability for folks in this country? So I think it's two separate issues. I think we need more housing supply. We need to break down the zoning codes. We need to tie increased density to you want this government money for transit. Fine. We're going to you're going to take increased density as a result. So we have to do everything we can to increase the density. We also, I think, at the margin, have to make mortgage credit a little bit more available. More the Obviously, mortgage credit was way, way too loose in 2006, 2007, but it's since gotten way too tight. I mean, so if you look back to, um, we're taking about a third of the credit risk we were taking in 2001 to 2003, a period of reasonable credit standards, less than a third of the credit risk we were taking in 2006, 2007, a period where credit standards were way too loose. And I think we have to marginally, and we have to both improve our ability to determine who should get a mortgage by incorporating things like alternative credit. But more importantly, we have to marginally expand the probability of default that we will tolerate in order to give more people the opportunity to build wealth. Lori Goodman, thanks so much for joining us on Our America. Thank you very much for having me. Really appreciate it. Take care. Thanks again to our sponsor for this episode, the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, which remains focused on housing affordability. As always, folks can leave us a voicemail sharing the stories you care most about at 833-453-6662 and subscribe to Lemonada Premium on Apple Podcasts. Catch you next week. America is a Lemonada Media Original. Our producer is Jorge Olivares, with executive producers Jessica Cordova-Kramer, Stephanie Whittleswax, and Julian Castro. Mix and scoring is by Ivan Kurayev. Music is by Xander Singh. Please help others find the show by rating and reviewing wherever you listen. And follow us across all social platforms, at Julian Castro, at Sawyer Hackett, and at Lemonada Media. If you want more Our America, Subscribe to Lemonada Premium only on Apple Podcasts. What do weddings, Instagram, and toxic relationships all have in common? They take your money and you can't get it back. 16 grand, somewhere in there. Gone. There's no legal solution for the fact that you married an asshole. Welcome to The Dough. I'm Ex Mayo. We're diving into the stories surrounding the moolah baby. The good, the bad, and the unexpected. Yeah, we're talking about it all. The Dough is out now, wherever you get your podcasts.
Feeling decision fatigue about what to make for dinner? We get it. I'm Jane Black. And I'm Liz Dunn. We're veteran food journalists, and as parents ourselves, we know how hard it can be to feed your family. That's why we created Pressure Cooker, a podcast that offers practical strategies for navigating the marketing madness and cultural expectations around mealtime. Each week, we'll check in with the experts. From social media diet trends to baby-led weaning and AI meal planning, we have all your food-related questions covered. Listen to Pressure Cooker wherever you get your podcasts.